All right. Well, I want to get things started right off the bat with uh, maybe talking a little bit about maybe the elephant that might be starting to happen in the room, and that is when you see the sermon title, um, Am I Being Irreverent? Uh, my wife advised me against using this title, and yet I went against her uh, advice, so don't blame anybody but me. Um, party pooper. All right, so why did I name this sermon party pooper? That's not scriptural, right? That's not something that uh, normally you might see as a sermon title. I do not mean to be irreverent. I do not mean to use a word that would offend some people. But this is a phrase that most of us are familiar with. Most of us are familiar with what a party pooper is. Um, and no doubt, either you've known a party pooper or you've been a party pooper. Okay, And what a party pooper is is simple... It's somebody that when things are going well and things are happy and joyful and things are just good, you know, you're just having a good time and there's that one person that just finds a way to make it not so fun. They find a way to damper everybody else's spirit. The other, the other words you could use for this would be uh, a popular one nowadays I hear a lot is you can be a Debbie Downer. Uh, you know, the same idea, you know, everything is negative that there's always a problem with something. Somebody can come to you with something that's really, really exciting and you'll find something to say that is not so exciting, something that would make somebody sad. Uh, If you're not following with these illustrations, either a party pooper or a Debbie Downer, and you don't know what I'm talking about, maybe you're a child or a parent of a child that watched the movie Inside Out. Now, if you watch the movie Inside Out, and whenever I mention a movie, by the way, I'm not endorsing it, I'm just saying. Okay, so we got Inside Out. There's a couple of different characters. There's Joy. Joy is the character that no matter what happens, she's always happy. Like, to the point where she gets pretty annoying at times. It's like, okay, happy all the time, but then you've got sadness. And if you've watched the movie, you've seen sadness. She's this short blue lady, and, and everything, somehow, some way, she finds to make it about being sad. And she becomes a Debbie Downer, she becomes a party pooper, and that is her job in the mind of this girl who all the emotions are represented, and she is the sadness. She is the one that makes sure that nothing is seen completely with joyful thoughts or joyful memories, but there's always sadness that is there. And at times that can get pretty depressing even watching that movie. And maybe you've been around party poopers, maybe you've been around Debbie Downers, and you know what it feels like to be around those people. Uh... I was once a party pooper. Um, okay, I still am. Um, uh, just recently, actually, and once again, another movie reference, but I went with a bunch of friends from here to watch the new Star Wars movie, uh, and a bunch of people loved it, and I think it was a terrible movie, and I still do. Uh, but the point of the matter was, everybody was so excited about how great this new movie was, and there I was, no, no, it's not good at all, guys. Why, what is your problem? And I was a downer. I was a party pooper in a really real sense. And uh, my final illustration before we get into the text today, we have gone with our kids to many, many museums. We've been to science museums. We've been to the play museum. We've been to different kinds of museums. And I would say that kids in a museum are party poopers. If you've ever been with a kid... And you're walking through and you're seeing some really cool exhibits. Like, I remember we were at the Science Museum uh, at one time. We were looking at dinosaurs and I'm trying to, I'm talking to the kids and explaining to them 
that most of the stuff on the plaque was probably incorrect, but I was going and we were talking about the dinosaur. Now, isn't this so cool that you can see a giant dinosaur and all of its bones and that God created such an amazing animal? And I turn around and my kids are like gone because they don't, they, they, they're just running around. They don't care. Uh, the play museum, you know, I see a toy that I had as a kid and I go, well, this is exciting. Hey kids, I used to play with this toy. All the time, and my wife would come over, oh yeah, I remember playing with that toy. Kids, isn't this great? And they look at it like, what is it? And they run to go to the video game, or whatever it might be. Um, you can't go to a museum with a kid and be joyful. You just can't, because nothing matters to the child. And so, with all of those illustrations, I'm making this point to say that today is a day of joy. Uh, we celebrate Palm Sunday, and we, it is a day of joy, and it's a day of excitement, and, it's a, and we see that that is true, because uh, we'll see in just a minute why we celebrate Palm Sunday, and why it is so joyful. Well, why do we celebrate it? Well, first of all, it proclaims the kingship of Christ. We'll go to the story today, we'll actually read what it says in the scriptures about what happened on that first Palm Sunday, but even ahead of time, if you know what Palm Sunday is all about, it's the crowds that are calling out to Jesus and, letting, and having him enter as king. They're proclaiming him as king. And of course, this is a joyful time. To proclaim Jesus as king is, is something that is exciting and it's truth. And we can see that this day proclaims Jesus as the Christ, the king that would be. It also starts Passion Week, uh, which... Ultimately, even though Jesus ends up being beaten and killed on Good Friday, we know that, but ultimately the week ends with his resurrection. Probably the most joyful thing of all time. That death is defeated, that sin is defeated through Jesus' death and resurrection. And so we start on Palm Sunday. This is the day we start to officially you know, celebrate at this time of the year, Passion Week. And so it really makes sense that Palm Sunday is often a day of joy and celebration. And this event is described in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're not going to look at all of the Gospels today, but I would encourage you to read each one of them. They all have a little bit different perspective, but yet tell the the same details of what happened on that first Palm Sunday. Today, we're going to be looking at Luke 19, 28 through 44. So we're going to look at the Luke uh, narrative in Luke 19, 28 through 44. And we're going to get the historical description of what happened on the first Palm Sunday. But see, here's why I named this party pooper. This is why we just had all those illustrations. Because in this passage in Luke, we are going to see that in a way, and I want to be very careful here, but Jesus plays the part of a party pooper. On a day in which everyone else was happy and partying, we will see in Luke that Jesus is weeping. And I'm not here to defame Jesus in any way. I'm not calling him a party pooper, but I am saying in the sense of the idea where everybody else is excited, everybody else is joyful, everybody else is proclaiming him as king. This is a day that he is triumphing, that he is walking into Jerusalem as a triumphant king. That's what the people are seeing this as. And in the book of Luke, as we look at this passage, we're going to see in the midst of all this, we find Jesus weeping. That Palm Sunday, although a day of joy, and although a day in which we can truly celebrate the life of Christ, his kingship, and his ultimate death and resurrection, that first Palm Sunday for Jesus was not the same as it was for the crowds. And so as we look at Luke 19, 28 through 44, we're going to see how this plays out. And then, after we look at this first Palm Sunday, and we look at it from the eyes of Luke, then we're going to look at some background. Why Jesus 
was weeping on a day in which it seems like anyone else would be excited and joyful and anybody else would be ready to just continue the party. And yet Jesus weeps. And so we're going to look at Luke and we're going to see what happens. And then we're going to look at John and hopefully we'll see why the things that are happening are happening. And we're going to do a lot of reading this morning. And I I hope that it will just, as we read, it will remind you of what Palm Sunday is all about. And it will remind you of who Jesus is and what he was and is all about. So if you want to go with me to the book of Luke, we're going to be in Luke chapter 19. Like I said, verses 28 through 44. And when he had said these things, this is Jesus, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he, draw near, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a, tol- a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. And so those who went were set, who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the, on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if, there, if they, these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And then when he drew near and saw the city... He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. For now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation." All right, so we see the narrative. We see what happens. Let's break it down as we would any other literary narrative. As we look at Luke 19, 28 through 44, we start by looking at the setting. What is the setting here? Well, we're told that he is going to Jerusalem, and specifically the, the towns that are mentioned are Bethphage and Bethany. All right, so he's starting in Bethany. He's going to Jerusalem. Bethany is on one side of the Mount of Olives. Jerusalem's on the other. He's going to pass to Jerusalem, but he's going through Bethany. That's going to become important as we look at John in just a few minutes. He's on his, so he's going to be traveling. So the road that is being traveled is to Jerusalem. It's, on, it's during Passover. It's a time when he would be coming into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover with his disciples. And so that's the setting of the timing. The timing is around Passover. The place was Bethany to Jerusalem. The characters we see in this are pretty simple. You've got Jesus, right? There's no question about that. Jesus, who is the one that is riding the colt. Jesus is the one who is going into the town. We also see a crowd of disciples and followers that are along with him. It says the multitude of his disciples or followers. We see a crowd of people who have been following Jesus. 
Then we also see that there's religious leaders, the Pharisees. They're also here in this narrative. So we have Jesus coming in. We have a crowd that is welcoming him. We have Pharisees that are questioning him. And so we have a group of people here that are all coming together at the time of Passover. So what's the plot that we see happening as we understand the setting and the characters? Well, just to recap what we just read, we see that Jesus meets a crowd on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, he, calls, he calls for a colt to ride upon, which we'll talk about why when we get to John. He, he, call, he gets a colt, his disciples get a colt for him, he sits on the colt, and he's riding into Jerusalem. And as he rides into Jerusalem, you see the crowds are laying their clothes down on the road. And if you know the very idea of Palm Sunday, the other passages in the other Gospels talk about palm branches as well. Palm branches being laid down and waved while clothes are laid in front of the path. We'll talk about the significance of those in a little bit. So the people are there to greet him. And we're told here in this passage in Luke that the people are here, they're following him, they're around him because they have seen the mighty works. That's what it says here in chapter 19. And it says here, I'm trying to find exactly where this says. Um, he says in verse 37, And he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. They had seen Jesus do mighty works. Miracles, no doubt. And John will see exactly what they might have in mind right off the bat. And so these crowds are following him because of the mighty works that he has done. And they are hailing him as the king who would bring peace. The king that would finally end their misery, finally end their captivity and bring peace. Then enter the Pharisees. So as the people are declaring Jesus as king... As he's coming in and they're shouting praise to the king that they're saying Jesus is king. They're calling him the Messiah. The Pharisees are there to get a little scared. And the Pharisees are there to try to destroy what's going on. And they say to Jesus, tell your followers to stop saying this. They didn't like that someone was being referenced as king that they didn't agree with. And we're going to look at that as we go to John even deeper as well. And Jesus refuses to rebuke his followers. And basically what Jesus says is this. If the followers don't say it, then the rocks will because it's true. Jesus doesn't deny here that he is the Messiah. There is no question at this point of history that Jesus is declaring. And as the people are calling him Messiah, as the people are declaring him as king, he is walking along the path and he knows it's true. And that's why he says, if the, if the people don't do it, the rocks will, because this is truth that needs to be proclaimed. And so that's the plot that we see. And then we find the, the last part of the plot, which also melds into conflict. In every narrative, we usually see conflict, and we see conflict here in Jesus. Because we see that the crowd is rejoicing, and they're praising Jesus, they're calling him king. The Pharisees are upset with Jesus, so there's this conflict there, even between the people and the Pharisees. But in the midst of all of this, we find Jesus weeping as he looks at Jerusalem. Now, put yourself in the shoes of Jesus, and if you just think about what's going on here. 
people are, are laying clothes down before you. They're waving palm branches. They're bowing. They're declaring you as king. You know you're king. And you're coming into the city. And, and you know that you've got this following. Any human would be like, this is where I need to be. Like, this is, I've, I've arrived. This is it. This is, this is it. I've finally arrived to where I need to be. And the people are finally realizing and it's all going the way it should and it's all right. And there'd be, a, there'd be rejoicing. And yet Jesus, we find him as he looks to the city, as he marches on this colt down the road to Jerusalem, as he looks to Jerusalem, he weeps. He weeps. And he declares that Jerusalem will be destroyed because they have missed their visitation. They have missed the times that make for peace, as he would say. This is a really weird dichotomy. We see rejoicing on one end, we see anger in the middle, and then we see Jesus weeping. The people were excited, but it was obvious that even in their excitement, they were missing something. They were missing the truth of who Jesus was and who Jesus is. So that is just what happened on Palm Sunday. Maybe it's been a while since you've read the passage, and like I said, you can read it in Matthew, you can read it in Mark. Those are all very similar, the, the three synoptic gospels but then john tells us even more and just like any good narrative you need to understand the background you need to understand the setting you need to understand what's going on behind the scenes just to break for just to just for a second i thought about this i thought about what is john what is john's passage here in john 12 1 through 43 really doing what is the function of john's passage well it's a like i said this is John is giving us details that the other gospel writers don't give us. Things that help us understand why what is happening is happening. Why people are are welcoming Jesus as king and then why Jesus ends up weeping. And so we're going to take some time to look at John. And as I thought of that, as I thought of what John's purpose was as we look at the, the Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, I think of the movie, once again another movie, but Lion King one and a half. If you've watched The Lion King, one of my favorite movies growing up, uh, as, a, as a kid I loved The Lion King, but there's lots of questions when Timon and Pumbaa come on, right? You remember Timon and Pumbaa, the little meerkat and the, the warthog, right? They're, really, they're the comic relief of the movie. Uh, they sing the nice song, Hakuna Matata, No Worries, uh, and, they, and that is Timon and Pumbaa, but they kind of come out of, the, out of the middle of nowhere. You don't really know where they came from or why they have a part to play in the story, uh, Lion King one and a half comes out and it was very interesting. If you've seen the movie, it tells the background story of Timon and Pumbaa and how they met Simba and how they raised Simba after he ran away. And it's interesting because as you watch that, you understand a whole lot more about the whole plot of what was really happening in that first movie. And, and in the same way, that's what has happening here in John. And it's beautiful as we look at what John writes because it gives us so much insight and understanding into what was really happening on Palm Sunday, what was really happening during the triumphal entry. And so let's take some time to look at John 12. And yes, it's 43 verses, and yes, we're going to read them all. And then we're going to look at the significance that John puts upon these events. Starting in John 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, from whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and appointed the feet of Jesus with, and wiped his feet with her hair, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. 
The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out and met him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. For the disciples did not yet understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was because they had heard they had done that he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, You see that we are, we are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And so these came to Philip, who, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life loses it, or loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, my, now, is my, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come for this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowds that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice came, not, came for your sake, not mine. Now it is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And so Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before him, them, he, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what we have heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory and his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. 
For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. We're going to stop there. And this gives us some background. It gives us even some what's going to happen in the future as Palm Sunday is happening. So let's look at some significance that we see, starting with the setting. What is the significance of the fact that Jesus is starting in Bethany? Well, in chapter 12, here of John, we see that Bethany, and many of you already knew this when I said Bethany, Bethany is the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And so we see that the setting starts in Bethany, the home of Lazarus. It's important that we understand the context of what is going on here as the crowds are following Jesus. They have heard about the fact that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus had been raised recently. Uh, Now there's some debate on when exactly this happened. Um, We know that it was sometime uh, winter or early spring Uh, And so it's only at least been in the last few months. There are actually some scholars that believe that Lazarus rose again, that Jesus brought him back to life only a week before Passover. There's lots of questions. We don't know exactly when Lazarus was raised again, but we do know that it was not too far away, that it was was recent history in in any way we look at it. So it's been recent history that Lazarus has been risen, and the Jewish leadership is upset And they're seeking to kill Jesus out of fear for the Romans. Back in John chapter 11, I won't read it all, but we see this to be true. After Lazarus is raised, a lot of people are starting to follow Jesus and the Jewish authorities get scared. The Jewish authorities get scared because they they know that Jesus, now people are following him and it's going to hurt the nation. Uh, We see that here even going back to chapter 11. And it says this, In verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. We see that the Jewish leadership, they see Lazarus has been risen again, that people are following Jesus as a result of this miracle and are getting really, really scared. Because they're afraid that Rome is going to see this as rebellion. And when Rome sees it as rebellion, that they would be crushed. This is their fear. And so what does Caiaphas say? He says, look, it's better for us to kill Jesus than for the whole nation to perish. It's better for us to get rid of this guy who people are following. And that was his way of solving the problem. And yet he didn't even know it, but in saying all this, he's actually prophesying what would truly happen, that Jesus would die for the nation, for all nations actually. And so we see in this significance of the setting that the understanding of what happened with Lazarus is important to understand as we go into Palm Sunday. This gives us insight as to why the Pharisees are so upset about Jesus being called king. You know, as people are worshiping him, as as he's going into the city and people are calling him king, of course the Pharisees are going to tell Jesus to to tell them to be quiet. Because the Pharisees are realizing that if the Romans, who are in the city, by the way, because around Passover there would be even extra Roman guards as normal because they were afraid of rebellion. So Romans are around, Pilate is in town, all of this is happening And the Pharisees are really scared. 
Because if this, if this gets to Rome, that there is a group of people calling someone else a king other than Caesar, there's going to be a problem with Rome. And so the Pharisees tell Jesus, look, you, you don't understand what your, your people are saying. You need to stop them or Rome is going to come and destroy us. There's a lot of fear here. This is, helps us to understand why in Luke they tell Jesus to stop his followers from saying that he is king. And as a last point of this setting, remember that these leaders then were not only looking to, G- to kill Jesus, but also to kill Lazarus. They're looking not only to kill the miracle maker, but also the one that had the miracle performed on him. And so we see a lot of fear, and that's driving them to want to kill. And that will play into, as we go into Passion Week, why Jesus is ultimately killed. Alright, so the significance of the plot is the next thing we're going to look at. So Jesus enters Jerusalem on a colt, on a donkey's colt, and is hailed as king. That's the plot we've seen happen. It's also told here in John again. It tells us exactly what Luke has already told us, except it adds a few details. Uh, the first thing is it adds this detail in verse 15, quoting from Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9 is a messianic prophecy that talks about the Messiah king that was to come to rule Israel. And so Jesus no doubt knew this. Obviously, it's God's word that wrote this, and he is God himself, so it's his own word. So he knows that this riding in on a colt the way he does, he asks his disciples to get the colt, and they do this. And by the way, the people that they take the colt from, they let it happen because they understand what this means as well. They understand that this is for the Messiah, that Jesus is the Messiah King that is coming to rule. And so this shows us, as he rides in on a colt, a humble, be- a humble beast. Not a, a stallion that he waltzes in like the Romans would have, but a colt that shows his humility. And this is what people knew the Messiah would do, based on Zechariah 9.9. And so there's a little bit of background there, that Jesus is the Messiah King. On top of that, there the palm branches that weren't mentioned in Luke... Palm branches were a common custom of the day. And what they used palm branches for was when a king was coming back from a victory. They had defeated whatever country they had gone out to defeat or whatever army they were fighting. When they were coming back into the city, the people would meet the army and they would have palm branches that they would wave and palm branches that they would lay before them as a symbol of victory, as a symbol of military and political victory. That was what palm branches were used for. The clothes that were talked about in Luke. This happened often before kings would come into town. Clothes would be laid down as a, as a symbol of submission. To say that we're even going to take our very own clothes and lay them before you in submission as king. And so what the people are doing as they come together here, it is, they are really saying, Jesus, you are king, and everything they're doing is showing that. But I want to be clear here, and if you know what the Jews were looking for in a Messiah, it wasn't what Jesus ends up being. Jesus ends up dying for the nation, dying for all people, dying on the cross and rising again, but they know nothing of that. What the Jews are looking for in a Messiah king is someone to come as a military leader, someone to come as a political leader who will throw Rome off of their backs and make them independent and give them victory over Rome. And by the wording and by the actions that they are doing as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, this is still where the crowd is at. Now, no doubt there are some disciples that are in there that are truly following Jesus for all the right reasons. I understand that it has to be true. His own disciples are in there, but none of them fully understand what is coming. 
And so we see this happening and we understand then that the significance of the plot is that the people of Jerusalem are calling Jesus king and are looking for him to destroy Rome. That's what their hope is. Why would they hope that? Well, you think about the characters that are following here. They actually are told why they might be thinking that Jesus is the king. The significance of the characters, first of all, of course, Jesus knows what he's doing. Jesus knows that he needs the cult. Jesus knows what's happening here. He knows he's being proclaimed king. He knows he is king. And he also knows that people don't quite understand what that means. The crowds that were following Jesus, the next characters we see, were told here in this passage that why were they gathered? Why was the crowd here? The crowd was not there because they believed in everything Jesus was and everything that he said and they understood what was about to happen to Jesus. The crowds were there for one reason. Because they knew that he raised Lazarus from the dead. Same thing would happen today. If you heard and it was verified that there was somebody down the road that literally raised somebody from the dead, a bunch of us would want to go down and see what's going on. Because it's something that doesn't happen, actually ever. Except when Jesus comes on the scene and he raises Lazarus. And so people are following Jesus because if a man can raise somebody from the dead, then he is the Messiah King. He is the one that can defeat Rome. But make, make, make no mistake, they are following him because of what they have seen. They are following him because of his mighty acts. Remember back in, in Luke, those are the words that were used, the mighty works that Jesus did. It's the miracles, specifically the miracle of, of raising Lazarus that has allowed this crowd to be so big that has now come before Jesus, that is now laying all their stuff before him, saying that he is king. I would go out on a limb and say that these people were worshiping Jesus because of what he could do for them. Not what they could do for him. Which leads us to the next part that we're going to look at. The significance of the conflict we see here. So After all this happens, we are given information of why Jesus would have been weeping over Jerusalem. Now as we go on from here, we don't know the exact timing. It would have been happening during the week after Palm Sunday. So this isn't all happening in one day. But what we do understand, Jesus would have known all this was coming. And this was a very real reason why he would be weeping. Jesus knows that the crowd's faith is misplaced. That they are hailing him as king because of his works, because of his miracles. But that his mission is not to defeat Rome. His mission is not to become a political leader. His mission is not to become a military leader. His mission is not to throw throw their slavery out. His mission is to save people from their sins. Not from Rome, but to save people as he would say here in the book of John... Even, and I know we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but in verse 31 it says, now, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He wasn't here to cast out Caesar. He wasn't here to cast out Pilate or any of the Roman authorities. Jesus came to die for sin, to give people hope and to save us from our sins and to save us from the, the enemy, to save us from the ruler of this world, to save us from the grasp of Satan. That is the enemy, and we looked at that even two weeks ago as we looked at spiritual warfare. And Jesus, his mission was different than what the people thought it was. And he basically says this. So I'm not just making this up, because we see here in verses 20 through 36, we see what he says. Some, some Greeks come to see Jesus, or Gentiles. Uh, by the way, that, whole, that, that section there is just showing that the gospel is about ready to spread from the Jews who reject him 
to also to the Gentiles. Later on when Jesus says that he's going to draw all people to himself, the mention of the Greeks or the mention of the Gentiles makes us understand that. It's not that all people everywhere of all time will come to Jesus. We know that there are people who don't accept Jesus and go to hell. We know that that's true. What he's saying is all types of people, all kinds of people, Jews, Gentiles, all people are going to have the access to the Father through the sacrifice that Jesus would make. But in the greater context of what Jesus is saying here from verse 20 to 36 is that he is going to die. He comes and he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he talks about a grain of wheat that has to die before it can grow. You can keep a a seed of anything and you can keep it on your counter and it stays a seed forever. But if you plant it in the ground and it stops being a seed, then it can grow into something better. And Jesus is making this analogy and he's saying just like the wheat, the wheat seed has to die, the grain has to die to become a plant, so it's true that Jesus will have to die to see even greater things happen. That he will be glorified, that God will be glorified through this happening. And then he goes on and he says this, he says, whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What is Jesus saying? Well, Jesus proclaims that he's going to die, which is going to be weird enough for the people who are looking at him as a, as a political king. He says he's going to die, but then he also says that as my followers, if you truly are to follow me, then you will also have to sacrifice your lives. Maybe not physically, but the idea there is that their lives should mean nothing in light of their faith in Jesus. The rest of the Gospels are just full of references about Jesus talking about this very point, that following Jesus is not just verbal assent, it's not just believing with him in our minds, but it is committing to him, to follow him, to sacrifice ourselves for his cause. And Jesus is saying this. Now, the people that are hearing this, this is not what is expected. Verse 34 You know, verse 34, so the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So they know he's talking about the fact that he's going to die. And they say that doesn't make any sense. Because what we've heard, what we've been taught is that when the Messiah King comes, he'll never die. Which we know is true because Jesus, although dies as a man, he rises again and defeats sin and death. But they're not thinking that. They're not looking at that. They don't have hindsight as we do. And so it's not what was expected, but it would be what would ultimately glorify God in verse 28. Jesus says, look, I could ask for this not to happen, but that's not the point. The point is I need to die because that's what's going to glorify my Father. So Jesus lived to glorify God. So as Jesus sacrificed and Jesus lived to glorify God, we should do the same. And then we see as a result of this teaching, we see Jesus is now rejected by many of the Jews that are with him. In verse 36b through the end of what we read, we see after he says this, he actually hides himself from them. He leaves. says then in verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Jesus was rejected by his own people. Now, this, this isn't a surprise to him. 
And it's not a surprise to us, and this is why Isaiah is mentioned here. Even from Isaiah's time, he was telling that, look, the people aren't going to listen because they're going to be stubborn and hard-hearted so that the gospel will flow not just to Jews, but to Gentiles and all the world. And so even though Jesus knew this was coming, Isaiah 53, 1 and 6, 10 are the ones that are quoted here. That, the, that there would be rejection. This opens the door to the Gentiles. So God's purpose is being fulfilled, but Jesus knows he's going to be rejected. Back in Luke, when he weeps over Jerusalem, and he talks about their destruction because they've missed his visitation, Jesus understands that what is happening is that even though people are worshiping him and praising him because they want him to be their king that will deliver them from Rome, they don't get it. He understands that he's going to be rejected. And a week later, a lot of, many of the same people, and I don't think it's the exact same crowd, but many of the same people are going to be in the crowd that are going to be calling for him to be crucified that just a week before were calling for him to be king. Because the people just didn't get it. And this is why Jesus would weep. So on Palm Sunday, when there is so much joy and excitement of the people, Jesus weeps because he knows that he's going to be rejected. And that is something that causes him to weep. The Jews missed their Messiah. They were looking for the wrong salvation. So I say all of this and you say, okay, this is a good story, but what does it have to do with me? As we look at what's happening and what Jesus is saying is that, look, There are some things we can learn from the people. There are some things we can learn from the crowd. So the first question I want to ask us today is, are you antagonistic to the gospel? In other words, is fear, just like the Pharisees and the leaders, is fear keeping you from Jesus? You're afraid of what might happen if you follow Jesus. You're afraid of what people might think of you. You're afraid of what you might lose if you come to Jesus and you give your life to Christ. If you look at Jesus and you see him as the perfect man who came to this earth for your sake to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for your sin so that you could be forgiven if you will come to him and accept him in faith. And if you will do that and commit your life to Jesus who then not only died for you but rose again, which we'll celebrate next week, and he rose again to defeat sin and death so that you can have new life and new hope and eternal life with him. And if you have not accepted Jesus and it's because you're afraid and you're being antagonistic, I believe that most people who are antagonistic to the gospel, it's not because they're actually angry about the gospel, it's because they're scared of the gospel. Because they're scared of what it might mean for their lives. Jesus offers eternal life here and now and forevermore. He offers to, have, to, to be your savior. Don't reject him any longer. Accept him as the king that he is. Not the king you want him to be, but the king that he is. Accept Jesus. Ask Jesus to be your savior. Commit your life to him. The next question, I think this is a broader question for all of us. Are you just cheering for Jesus or are you committed to him? The crowds on the road were very exuberant. They praised him. They yelled that he was king. They laid their clothes down. They waved palm branches. They were excited about Jesus. But they didn't get it. When life is easy and Jesus is comfortably who we want him to be, it's easy to follow him. When life is comfortable and everything is just the way we want it to be, it's easy to follow Jesus. But when things get tough, 
or maybe there's better, more exciting things that happen to come around, do you still follow Jesus no matter what? Do you still follow Jesus even if it means what he talked about, that not only will he die, but you are expected to sacrifice your way of life. You're called to sacrifice yourself. I'm not talking about physical sacrifice. I'm talking about giving up who you are and your selfish desires for his desires. That is what salvation is. It's not just waving palm branches. It's not just coming to church on Sunday and saying, I love you, Jesus. I'm going to sing some songs. I'm going to pray. I'm going to talk with people. I'm going to read my Bible. And yay, this is great. No, that is, that, that is all important stuff that we should be doing. But that is not what salvation is about. Salvation is about giving of our life to Jesus. It's committing ourselves to him completely. Not just praising him when things are easy. Not just being excited about who Jesus is. Many of you have probably read the book, Not a Fan. If you haven't read that book, I would, I would, I would encourage you. I believe our library has it. It's a great book that talks about, that uses a lot of scripture to show us that indeed we need to be followers of Jesus and not just fans. That's what he expects. The last question is an interesting, tricky question. And that is, are you a secret believer? Now, I know there's the question, is there such a thing? There are scholars on both sides of this, but what we see here at the end of John chapter 12 that we just read that part, we see that it says this in verse 42. Nevertheless, many of even the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For if they they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This is a tough passage. Did these authorities really know Jesus? Were they really saved or were they not? My answer, I really don't know. God does. But what I will say here is this isn't the way it should be. I know I can say that with 100% certainty. It does say that they believed in him and, and John many times throughout his gospel, that's the phrasing he uses of people who come to know Jesus. So maybe they really are saved and they're just not saying it. Maybe... They've started to believe in him and they won't really get saved until after he dies and after things. I I don't know how it all works, but what I do know is this is not the way it should be. And it's put here in, in the word of God because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Is this you? Do you maybe believe the truths of Jesus in your heart and maybe you even, and maybe you really are truly saved and you're truly a Christian and yet you don't talk about it, nobody knows, you're a secret Christian. This is not the way it should be. This might not mean that you're not a Christian, but it might mean you're not, so you really want to consider this. Are you truly following Jesus, and are you being obvious about it, or are you just trying to keep it to yourself? The rulers and authorities here that kept it to themselves out of fear of man as opposed to fear of God, and they were doing something wrong. Now, I want to just say something here. Think about it. If there were people in the leadership that were truly believing in Jesus, and the time came to have trials... And the time came to put Jesus to death. Where were they? Well, they were being quiet. They weren't saying anything. Jesus ends up being put to death because even people who were saying they were believing in him weren't standing up for him. You see, as Christians, we need to stand up for him because we need to not worry about the glory of man, but the glory of God, that we stand up for Christ even when it's tough, even when it means we have to sacrifice. And so my encouragement to all of us is if we're here, if you're here and you're not in, you're, you don't know the gospel and you're fearful of following Jesus, don't let fear control you anymore. 
come to Jesus. If you're here and you find yourself coming to church and cheering for Jesus, but not really being committed to him in any other part of your life, then that needs to change. You need to repent of that. You need to come to Jesus and ask him to completely control you, that you are willing to sacrifice for him because he was willing to sacrifice for you. And are you living a life as a believer that you believe Jesus or you say you believe Jesus, but yet your life doesn't reflect it? You're not telling people and you're keeping it a secret. No longer do that. Repent of that as well. Follow Jesus and give him your whole life. On this Palm Sunday, this is what I want us to remember. Yes, Jesus is king. Yes, Jesus is marching into Jerusalem and it is a joyful and it is a uh, true thing that he is king But let's also remember that the Christian life is not all about the party. But the Christian life is about true, hard, painful commitment to Jesus Christ. That is what Palm Sunday should mean to us. That it's not just about worshiping Him out loud, it's not just about being excited, but it's about following Him with every area of our lives. And that's... What I hope we all can get out of Palm Sunday as we think about it this week.